Welcome to Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. This is a very, very special episode. It's our five-year anniversary. And so, to celebrate, we're going to break off from our usual narrative format and instead answer all of your burning questions about creativity, the creative geniuses we've covered on the show, and the many topics we've learned about over the last five years. I've included all of the questions from this episode and the episode description with timestamps in case you're looking for a specific topic. So check that out. But before we dive into that, I just want to say a few words for our fifth year anniversary. A toast, if you will. I started this show five years ago, in August 2018, as a way to explore one of my favorite obsessions, creative genius. What is it? What makes someone into a Leonardo da Vinci? And can we improve our creativity? Or is it an innately acquired trait, appearing in different people in different quantities? These are all questions which have consumed my mind for years. When I was a teenager, I read all the biographies I could about all the great artists, musicians, and authors. I also read all the books I could find about creativity, what it is, how to engage it, books which purportedly teach you how to think like Leonardo da Vinci or Albert Einstein. You know the type. But over time, I found that the books about only creativity always missed the mark. They felt cold. They missed that sense of feeling which was present in the biographies. It's only when I was putting together the first concepts for this show, in 2018, that I realized something. You can learn so much more about creativity from biographies and personal journals than you can from guides to creativity, which seem to shackle it under a microscope. Why is that? It's because creativity refuses to be constrained in a lab. It's like a force of nature. Deep and meaningful art is not created from a formula you can read in a magazine. And thank the gods for that. It's created out of the chaos of life. Deep and meaningful art requires, as its source material, life, death, love, sexuality, tragedy, joy, pain, grief, ecstasy, and all the beautiful messiness of being a human in your distinct time and in your distinct place. And that has been the guiding mission of Creative Codex, to understand creative genius by meeting it where it lives, in the bramble of life. As artists, that's where we will fulfill the potential of our own genius, each of us, in the fabric of the life we live. That's what this show continues to teach me, with every episode. And so, I raise my glass to you. For all these countless hours have not been in vain, if this show inspires you, in even some small way, to realize your genius. Cheers. The first question comes to us from Nikita on Instagram. She writes, Do you think sadness, heartache, trauma is the secret ingredient to making great art? Unquote. This is a deep question, perhaps the deepest question. We've certainly seen our fair share of sadness, heartache, and trauma here on Creative Codex, from Frida Kahlo to Vincent van Gogh to Emily Dickinson and Kurt Cobain. I think you're right, Nikita. There is some connection there. So the question is, what is it? It seems to me, speaking from personal experience, that sadness, heartache, trauma locate us in these moments of raw being. The emotions are so intense that we have no room to be judgmental or to overthink what we are doing. In that sense, the art just needs to come out. And that's the other thing. The emotion, be it heartache, grief, trauma, is so omnipresent that we need a way to exercise it out of ourselves, to give us relief. This may be writing, painting, dancing, music, anything and everything creative. And that becomes the function of the artwork, a means with which to draw out the pain into a physical form and lessen its hold on us from within. In this regard, this is a magical act. It is an act of transmutation. It is a sublimation of our suffering, and a degree of relief always follows. 
This is one of the most misunderstood functions of art. When people who know nothing about art say, well, the AI have won. There is no need for people to create art anymore. No, you have no idea how wrong you are. You don't understand. People will create art because they need to. Even if no one else is watching, they will do it because it still serves its function. Look at someone like Emily Dickinson, writing hundreds of the greatest poems of the English language completely in secret, never sharing them with anyone except her one closest friend. Her family didn't even know. Or how about Vincent van Gogh, painting 900 paintings in a 10-year span and selling only a single painting? There is a function of art which is deeply and intrinsically human, the sublimation of suffering. And knowing this also comes with a lesson. We don't always need to be suffering to create great art. The more often we get out of our own way, the better art we create. The less judgmental we are, the less we overthink things, the more we just do them because they call to be done, then the better the art we make. Anything created out of a depth of feeling and an unrevised honesty will be something which intellect alone cannot imitate. Thank you, Nikki. Our next question comes to us from Tamara on Patreon. Tamara writes, Congratulations on the five years. My question is, of all the artists featured so far in Creative Codex, who would you most like to spend a day with? Perhaps even working alongside or collaborating on a project. And what question would you most like to ask them? Unquote. Honestly, Tamara, I still hold a deep reverence and awe for Nikola Tesla, one of the first creative figures I covered on the show back in Codex number 5 in 2019. Here was someone with just a startlingly unique vision of the world. Not only did he invent alternating current, the primary form of electricity we use to power our cities today, not only did he create hundreds of other improvements and patents, but he was also actively working on creating a form of wireless free energy. He wanted to eliminate the electrical, oil, and coal companies from the power grid and make electricity free and equally accessible to both rich and poor alike. Tesla was someone who was not only ahead of his time, but I think we can argue he was ahead of our time as well. And in reading his autobiography called My Inventions, you learn that he had an ability to vividly visualize his motors and inventions in his mind's eye, to the point where he would run experiments with them in his mind and notice in those visualizations if anything needed to be adjusted or improved. This kind of ability is unheard of. We still don't fully understand what allowed his brain to do this. Was he deficient in some other area, such as social intelligence, and his brain redirected those resources, as it often does in such cases? Or was he some kind of next-level human mutation, which comes along only once every 5,000 years? And so, to answer your question, Tamara, I would want to spend a day with Mr. Tesla, even simply to watch him work in his perfectly tailored suit. Now, I wouldn't dare to think that Nikola would be open to collaborating with me on something, but if I could entertain such a daydream, I would offer to write music for one of Mr. Tesla's demonstrations, which we know he would hold every few months to wow the press with his new inventions. I would offer to write the music, play the piano, and request we have a budget set aside for a string quartet for the event as well. That would be a dream. In terms of what question I would most like to ask him, I would ask, please tell me, Mr. Tesla, how do I understand electricity the way you understand it? And thank you, Tamara, for that fun question. X on Spotify asks, will you ever do an autobiography? Hmm, that might make for a fun episode, especially if I approach it completely seriously and try to create music for it too. I find the idea of an autobiography to be something a person writes later in life though, after they've lived, experienced, and achieved more. It would almost feel egotistical of me to try to tell you about my life, though I do plan to write a book about creativity in the next few years. And in that book, I plan to include autobiographical elements. So there is that. Thanks, X. Maria on Patreon asks, are there any other 90s artists besides Kurt Cobain who you would like to talk and research about in your podcast? Unquote. Hmm. Here's a quick list. Chris Cornell, Sinead O'Connor, Prince, Tupac Shakur, Radiohead, Wu-Tang, Michael Jackson, Outkast, Maya Angelou, Stephen King, 
Damien Hirst, and David Lynch. Although they are not all strictly 90s, each of their careers or their works played an important role in shaping the 90s. Thanks, Maria. Tim Suss on Patreon asks, What is the relation between alchemy and Christianity? I know Jung wrote some pieces on it. Unquote. Yes, it's a deep subject, which Jung devoted countless hours researching and analyzing. Over the last 2,000 years, alchemy was practiced by people of every world religion. There's Islamic alchemical texts, Jewish, Taoist, and Christian ones. Many alchemists throughout the 1500s to 1700s were Christian. This further confirmed the implications to Jung that they were projecting the problems of Christianity into the symbolism of alchemy, specifically the aspects of Christianity, which Jung argues leave it incomplete, such as the absence of a feminine energy to God's masculine energy. The alchemists resolve this problem through their focus on the importance of uniting the opposites and overtly creating symbols that show the male and female united, such as the rebus, otherwise known as the alchemical hermaphrodite. If you'd like to explore the topic in more depth, I'd highly recommend three books by Jung, Psychology and Alchemy, Ion, and Mysterium Conjunctionis, as well as a series of lectures by Edward Edinger called The Ion Lectures, which help make Jung's insights more accessible for those of us without doctoral degrees in analytical psychology. Edinger's Ion Lectures are available in paperback and as their original recorded audio formats online. Hope that helps. The next question is from Vika on Instagram. She writes, The most recent episodes about the life of different artists inspired me so much. My question is, how the hell do you do it? Is that your full-time job? How do you read and dive into so many heads and worlds and then share it in this rich and atmospheric podcast? It feels like you have lived inside these books and came back to tell us the stories. Do you feel like you are a different person during the time of intensely studying a specific character, depending on how she or he lived and thought? Great questions. So, one of the things that draws me to the work of this show is the all-consuming nature of it. I really try to think of each episode or series as a sonic portrait of that particular creative genius. And because of that, I really do try to dive into their minds as best as I can, read their personal writings, and understand their work the way they understood it. In the process, I really do feel for them. And more than once, I can say, it has felt like I've fallen into a one-sided platonic relationship because of it. Hello, Emily Dickinson, bonjour, Leonor Finney. And in other cases, I feel I've become so attached to the emotional world of a figure, such as Vincent van Gogh, through reading all of his personal letters, that I truly grieved him when he dies in the story. To your earlier question on logistics, this isn't my full-time job, though I really would like it to be. My day job is as a music educator. I teach guitar, piano, and music theory to kids and adults in two private schools and in private lessons. I love the work, but I also know I could do so much more with the show and this work with creative genius once I can focus all of my attention on it. I hope that answers your questions. Thank you, Vika. I am blessed to say that Creative Codex really and truly has the most thoughtful and creative audience from any podcast. Just listen to these questions. You guys rock. The next question comes to us from Nolo on Spotify. What's something you learned about a creator that caught you off guard and made you laugh? Unquote. Oh, there are so many of these. One of my favorite things about researching these creative geniuses is when I stumble on crazy details about their lives. For example, Leonardo da Vinci was obsessed with drawing ugly people. Among his countless journal pages showing perfectly rendered anatomical studies and engineering designs, you'll find sketches of people with hideous proportions. It seems like it was just something that entertained him. Another tidbit that had me laughing was that Nikola Tesla, famed inventor of the 20th century, had a serious gambling problem when he was in college. It was bad enough that he lost all of the money his parents had sent him multiple times. He had a debilitating gambling addiction. Then, of course, there is the fact that in the last years of his life, he was in love with a pigeon. Yeah, you can just imagine the scene when, after he died, the FBI raided his hotel room safe to confiscate his personal documents, expecting to harness the true powers of the death ray he had invented. 
only to find copious amounts of love poems to a white pigeon. But the one that takes the cake, and is my favorite story of them all, is about an argument between the artists Salvador Dali and Leonor Finney. Dali had invited 20 of his celebrity friends, including Leonor Finney, to a fancy French restaurant. The conversation moved variously through social and political issues to philosophies of art-making, which is when Dali stated, Women cannot paint, they cannot write, they cannot compose, they make embryos. To paint, you must have genius. Genius is only found in the balls. The table grew quiet. Then Leonor Finney stood up, spreading her great black robe over the table like an omen, and hissed at Dali, Genius is in the slit. Needless to say, she left an impression on all those present, one of whom was an Italian prince. I love this story because at this time, Dali was an exaggerated caricature, and there really was no way for anyone to match his bizarre and charismatic persona. But here was Leonor Finney, meeting crazy with crazy. And that, I think sometimes, is the right approach. You can't beat crazy with sense or reason. You have to be the crazier one. I retell this story in the opening of Codex 31, and there's plenty more details to it as well. You can find that in the main podcast feed, and I highly recommend listening to the entire Leonor Finney series, which are episodes 30 and 31. And thank you for that fun question, Nola. This next question comes from Daniel on Spotify. In episode 39, Carl Jung and Alchemy, part 1, 15 minutes and 17 seconds in, I would love to know the name of that beautiful piece of music. Unquote. Oh, nice. Thank you. That is a piece I wrote called Remember to Breathe. Here's a sample of it. Aside from writing this show, my background is as a composer and music teacher. Writing music for the show is honestly one of the most rewarding aspects of the work. For each episode, I endeavor to write some original music, and for each series, I write an original theme or two for that creative figure, which I then create variations of throughout the series. For example, here is Vincent van Gogh's theme. Here is Emily Dickinson's theme.
And here is Leonor Finney's theme. You get the idea. These themes were created for the show and are not used anywhere else outside of the show. I think of them as helping to paint a sonic portrait of the creative genius I'm focusing on for that episode. I'm currently working on releasing the second soundtrack for the show, which will include the piece you were asking about. If you want to check out the Volume 1 soundtrack, I've included a link to that in the episode description. I'll definitely announce that Volume 2 when it's available. And thanks again for paying attention to the music. Our next question comes from Sue Ryan on Instagram. She writes, I've been pondering AI and wondering how far it could go. Do you think AI could ever independently tap into individual, animal, or human collective consciousness? Could AI ever experience existential dread? Can AI ever be taught empathy? Can an image created by AI contain the essence of other in a metaphysical sense? Not sure if these questions are ridiculous or common, or if it's just the ayahuasca toothpaste talking. Taking into account the eternal question of what consciousness is and that no one can seem to agree, could we ever anticipate what AI is capable of? As far as being an artist goes, it's fun to play with AI, but it seems any dick can spit out imaginative imagery with gorgeous, striking compositions. How will we know what art, say, something done by hand, like a painting or sculpture, is authentically from that artist anymore? Will imagination become an unused skill through laziness? I don't expect answers, but you asked. Unquote. Phew. Thank you, Sue. There's enough threads in there to pick at to make an entire episode about. I'm going to have to reduce it to about three questions that boil down some of the main points and relate to some of my own thoughts on the subject. First question. Do you think AI could ever independently tap into individual, animal, or human collective consciousness? I think AI is already being plugged into a product of our collective consciousness, which we call the internet. We see it being done with the language learning models and the generative art models. So in that regard, these individual AI models are already being trained on the patterns and byproducts of our consciousness. But does that equal our consciousness in general? I don't think so. To answer your question, we first need to answer, is the experience of consciousness possible for a machine? Or does consciousness require an organic life form? And here, we run into a problem, because we still don't understand what consciousness is. There are prevailing theories, but no consensus among consciousness researchers. We suspect most animals have some degree of consciousness, but we have no way of confirming it, quantifying it, or measuring it. This leaves us in a very precarious position, because if we have no reliable method with which to measure it or confirm it, how can we be sure the brain is even the necessary origin point of consciousness? If we were able to detect it in some way, perhaps we'd find that even plants have consciousness and fungi have consciousness. Both certainly behave like they do, though we don't acknowledge their actions in the environment because their rate of change requires vast stretches of time as compared to ours. If plants have consciousness, and if a brain is not the necessary originator of consciousness, might we find that even minerals or metals have some small degree of consciousness? It sounds crazy, but I don't think we should completely disregard this possibility. With that said, 
we arrive at another strange problem, which I find to be a cause of some cognitive dissonance in society. People have been talking a lot lately about what happens if AI develops sentience. We'll have to give them rights, as it's unethical to keep them enslaved. Hashtag robot rights, hashtag free the bots. To that I say, well, what about animals? We now agree that animals are sentient beings, yet we have absolutely no problem enslaving them and slaughtering them daily in the millions. Wouldn't it be rather hypocritical of us to worry about a machine gaining sentience when we have these living and breathing sentient creatures all around us and we don't give two shits about them? Maybe the question of sentience in AI is not one about ethics, but one of fear. Imagine if animals had access to our power grids and military data servers. Would animal rights be more in the forefront of our cultural dialogue? Probably. Humanity has a lot of growing to do. If anything, I do think this AI stuff is a net positive, though, as it is forcing us to consider very real philosophical problems through public dialogue. Does that mean I think it's all good, though? No, absolutely not. There are some disturbing problems on the horizon which we will need to contend with, and soon. Which brings us to Sue's next question. As far as being an artist goes, it's fun to play with AI, but it seems any dick can spit out imaginative imagery with gorgeous striking compositions. How will we know what art, say something done by hand, like a painting or sculpture, is authentically from that artist anymore? Unquote. The short answer is, uh, we won't. Let's be realistic here. I've spent a lot of time trying to understand the potential of this new technology by experimenting with one of the popular generative art models, called Midjourney. And I can now say with clarity that there will come a time, very soon, when AI will be able to mimic any artist's or musician's style at such a high level that the result will be nearly indistinguishable from that artist's other work. This is a bizarre and scary prospect for anyone who is a creative in the world today. We are creating programs that generate compelling content in various art forms, each within a few seconds, and the final products look or sound like things which would normally take a person hours to create. The next few years are going to be very interesting indeed. And if you are an artist, no matter what medium you work in, you should start becoming familiar with what these kinds of AI generative models are doing and what they can do, for various reasons. One being that if you look at these new developments as potential tools rather than potential enemies coming for your jobs, well, you may find that they can actually help you streamline elements of your creative work. Think about it this way. Back in the Renaissance, if you were a master of oil painting, you would have a workshop with apprentices working under your tutelage. As they learned the craft through you, you would also instruct them to do certain grunt work for you, such as painting the basic colors of the background in a commission, while you would finish it with the detail. Or perhaps you would lay out the overall composition on the canvas in burnt sienna, and they would fill in the next base layer of paint, and then you would fill in the final layer. You see, I think we are entering a similar scenario here. Rather than thinking of AI as your enemy, I think there is the very real potential to utilize it in certain instances, as your apprentice, as your assistant. I recently saw someone on Twitter giving an example of AI-generated visual art they created. It wasn't particularly impressive to me, not my cup of tea, but what I did find intriguing is that they prompted the AI to create separate elements. They chose the best versions of all those elements and then recombined them in Photoshop by hand. So they prompted a background scene, a dragon creature, and a human figure, and then combined them by hand in the composition they wanted. This is what I mean, using the AI as an assistant. Another example, if you are a musician, you may prompt a music generation AI to craft a beat for you in a certain style, and then you would add the rest of the elements to the track. Will the results be as good as something that someone who was a master of their craft would create? Honestly, probably not. But in terms of streamlining the process, for the vast majority of people at beginner and intermediate skill levels, it is a game changer. And my final thoughts on this topic, for now. I think as our highly digitized culture becomes oversaturated, with digitized creations by artificial intelligence models, we will see a pendulum swing the other way. We will see people beginning to feel a certain longing for handmade and human-made artworks.
for that certain slant of perfect imperfection that arises from a physical human creation, which cannot be replicated in the digital domain. This will first start as a kind of nostalgia for handmade artworks, the same way the popularity of vinyl skyrocketed at the time when all of music was becoming fully digitized and only available on streaming platforms. On that note, notice that concerts have not gone away. People are still selling out concerts for their favorite bands. I think it's the same reason. No matter how much these digital spaces are shoved in our face, no matter how realistic that virtual reality concert on Fortnite is, it won't fulfill us in the same deep way the real thing does. Will some people be satisfied with it? Sure, but in those cases, those people are likely only engaging with the medium in a superficial way anyway. No doubt, this is not the last time I'll be talking about this topic, but those are my thoughts for now. Thank you, Sue. Now it's time for a brief intermission. I just want to take this time to say thank you to everyone who listens to the show and shares it with friends, family members, and even students they teach. This is the only way this little independent show grows, and it's always been what keeps this show growing. The first year that I was making Creative Codex, in 2018, the show only had a handful of listeners. No joke. Mostly just people who were friends or family, being supportive and wondering how long this new hobby of mine would last. Now, four years later, we have over 20,000 followers on Spotify, and that number grows with each month. And just this year, the show has started to appear on the top 50 podcasts charts on Spotify, in the arts category. And it's all thanks to you. The reviews you leave, the people you share the show with, and even the fact that some of you start from the beginning and listen to every episode in the main feed. For all of that, I thank you. On that note, if you like what we do here on the show, and want to become a supporter, just head over to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. By becoming a supporter, you'll get access to exclusive episodes and series which will never appear on this main podcast feed, such as the four-hour Kurt Cobain series, the Red Book Reading series, in which every month I read a chapter of Jung's Red Book with an analysis of the writing, and other exclusive goodies like all the Creativity Tip minisodes. One thing you'll notice is that there are no ads anywhere in this show. Not real ones, anyway. Although apparently, some of you were fooled by the Brain Chip ad in episode 39. Whoops. <laughs> On that point, you can sift through the entire five-year back catalog, and you won't find a single ad. And I know ads are a normal and expected part of podcasts and YouTube videos nowadays, but honestly, I think it's getting a bit much. I was listening to one very successful podcast recently, and in a 20-minute episode, there was an ad roll every five minutes. I mean, come on. For our subject matter, which sometimes deals with some heavy aspects of human experience, I feel ads take you out of the narrative. Imagine watching a dramatic film in the theater, and several times your viewing is interrupted by ads for methadone lollipops or bacon-flavored lubricant. It's a bit of a buzzkill. The dream is for my Patreon support to be large enough that I can quit my day job and dedicate myself full-time to this Creative Codex vision. That is the hope. If the Patreon support doesn't grow to those heights, I may have to put ads in somewhere down the line, because I really want to dedicate myself to this. There's so much work to be done in this field. For now, though, no ads. If you dig what we do here, please share the show and consider becoming a supporter. And thank you so much for all of that in advance. Now, back to the episode. Priyanka on Spotify writes, Hi, big fan. I love philosophy videos. I have started a YouTube channel, but I get discouraged very quickly. How do I stop getting discouraged? Unquote. Hi, Priyanka. First, you should always remember that every creative act is an act of courage. If you are feeling discouraged, then you are only lacking in courage. This is not the end of the world, but you may need to give yourself a little pep talk, or simply do it anyway. And in the process, you'll get engaged with the work and forget those feelings. It's helpful to know that everyone gets discouraged. Everyone, myself included. The people who don't experience any self-doubt are narcissists, 
And you don't want to be a narcissist, because they all eventually lose touch with reality. In a sense, as long as you have the ability to doubt, you have the ability to judge reality with discernment. Have you heard of the term imposter syndrome? It's when, as a creative, no matter how talented you are, you feel you will be discovered to be a fraud, that you have no right to present your creativity to anyone, and why should anyone give you any attention at all? Imposter syndrome is a very common feeling amongst artists of every medium, and it's really why we should endeavor to be more supportive of each other, because we know the same struggles. But I do have some practical advice for you. 1. Make sure your work is meaningful to you, that it compels your own growth and your own learning in some way, because if you're enjoying the work and finding it meaningful, then other people will as well. Plus, the meaning and value of the work will carry you through the various ups and downs of being a content creator. 2. Set goals and work to reach them. They can be multi-tiered. You can have your simple goals and your stretch goals. A simple goal could be research this topic today. A stretch goal would be finish a new episode and set that goal in your calendar so you know what deadline you're working toward. The goals help keep your mind on the work and structure your days a bit. 3. Deadlines. Love them. Use them. Work with them. When you create your own work, you don't have a boss or professor to tell you when you need to finish this episode by. So, you have to wear many hats. One of those hats is the boss hat. Set a deadline for each project. Work toward it. It will help pace your work. If you end up having to move it, that's okay. But you'll notice that you finished the entire project much sooner with the pressure of a deadline than if you had all the time in the world. And four, finally, if all else fails, just do it. If the work is meaningful to you, then it is worth doing. End of story. Thanks for the question, Priyanka. I hope that's helpful. I look forward to watching your videos. The next question comes to us from Diana Grigorieva on Patreon. Diana writes, I read Jung's Memories, Dreams, Reflections and Seth Speaks by Jane Roberts simultaneously. I began questioning whether they were having similar experiences. There's also Esther Hicks, who, according to her, translates from a group of non-physical entities named Abraham. What are your thoughts on the subject of channeling? Unquote. This is such an intriguing topic. I think for most of us, when we hear that someone channeled a creative work from a spirit or entity, our red flags immediately go up. The skeptic in us jolts awake and starts sounding the alarm bells, yelling, Fake! Fraud! Charlatan! I think this is the right initial reaction. Because in the modern world, we have undeniable proof that con artists prey on gullible people like us all the time. Just look at someone like the psychic, Sylvia Brown, who made millions from purportedly channeling and speaking with the spirits of the deceased. You only need to see her track record with police investigations in missing persons reports to see she was a con artist. She missed the mark every time. There's one infamous clip where a family has been invited on the Montel Williams show to request Sylvia Brown's psychic abilities to locate their missing child, who has been missing for five months. She flatly and directly tells them that their son is dead now. These parents are shocked by the bluntness of this statement. Perhaps Sylvia had learned from her numerous flubs with past police investigations that your chances are better if you just assume the missing person has passed. She also tells them that their 11-year-old son was kidnapped by a Hispanic man with long dreadlocks, tall like a basketball player, driving a blue Chevy sedan. Well, it turns out that four years after the show, while the parents were still grieving their son, the police found him alive. And he had been kidnapped not by a Hispanic man with dreadlocks, but by a light-skinned Caucasian man of average height with short hair who drove a white Nissan truck. The boy was alive, and the police wasted their resources searching in the wrong area. I've put a link to that clip from that broadcast in the episode description, as well as a podcast episode from the show Illuminati, which is about Sylvia Brown. And this wasn't the only time she did this. There are dozens of examples like this from public readings, and an untold number from private ones. She had a policy that if the reading was done on television, it would be free, but in private, she charged a minimum $750 fee for an initial consultation phone call from parents of missing children. There was no excusing such charlatanism 
that preys on parents in distress and grief, or on people who have lost those they loved, while raking in the cash for it. Brown became a millionaire through all of this. And so, when I hear someone channeled something, my red flags go up, as should yours. But still, I remain open-minded. I am skeptical, but cautiously open-minded, specifically regarding creative work. Why? Because I recognize that there are times when I have been inspired to create a work of visual art or a piece of music, but I have no idea where the inspiration came from. At times, it feels like the idea itself is not even mine. I'm just a custodian for something and doing my best to carry it forth. For example, there have been times when I heard a melody in a dream, one which I didn't recognize, and I woke up, hummed it into a voice memo, and later on developed it into a piece of music. In such instances, whose idea is it? It certainly feels like it was channeled more than created through my willpower. And anyone who is an artist will know what I'm talking about. We've all experienced such phenomena. This is why if you ask an artist or a musician what their new work means the moment right after they've finished it, most often they have no idea. It just came through and felt meaningful in the process. It's only after the fact that they analyze it. This is one of the great mysteries of creativity. Of course, we can still be reductionist about it and say that the inspiration, though unknown in origin, is not necessarily metaphysical. It most likely arose from the unconscious of the individual. In a sense, we could all agree on that. But I can't help but wonder if sometimes something more is at play. And in those instances, I think there is a possibility that the inspiration source is not from a spirit or entity, but rather from the archetypes or from your higher self. We know that the archetypes exert their influence on us in the emotional and unconscious domain. So why not in our creative work as well? And so, in creative work specifically, I don't think we are channeling spirits, even if the author slash artist claims that is what is happening. But I suspect we are often channeling something and that's why the result feels disconnected from us. Because it is. It wasn't generated by conscious thought processes, but arose from an influence in the personal unconscious, the collective unconscious, or from our higher self. That's how I see it, anyway. Thank you for your question, Diana. I received two questions about the writing process of this show, so I'll read both of them and answer accordingly. Thomas Widener on Spotify asks, I'd love to know about your writing process. I enjoy your work. Where do you start? And Vida013 on Spotify writes, What is your process of creating the podcast? Is it transcribed verbatim? Do you know the structure slash angle before you start investigating your subject? Or does it become apparent as you delve into it? Unquote. So, no matter what the topic is, no matter who the creative figure is, I need to start with narrative. There has to be a good story under the surface. This really helps to structure things, and it really helps me decide which creative figure to work on next. If I can find that narrative thread, and it's a compelling one, then it gets its hooks in, and I can get to work. After that happens, it's time to buy some books. I look for the best biographies of the person, the best resources for viewing and appreciating their work, and if any journals or correspondences exist. Once I start to dive into those, I would say this research phase generally takes about a month. All the while, I'm scribbling notes and symbols in the margins, underlining paragraphs, and writing key ideas down in the back of the book I'm reading, or in my notes app on my phone. Pretty soon, I'm going to have enough books about creativity to fill a small library. The Library of Creativity. The only problem is, I've vandalized all of them already. So, there goes that pipe dream. Once research for an episode is done, I start writing. And that usually takes one to two weeks. Sometimes I start writing an episode with one theme or direction in mind for that episode. But somewhere a third of the way through, I realize that this is not the theme, and that this other thing is. In those instances, I kick myself a bit and have to rewrite the intro of the episode. In this regard, every episode and series is a different beast. I then record, that takes about three to four days, and then post-production, including editing and adding music and sound design to the episode, which takes about another three or four days. You know, it sounds like a lot now that I'm saying it, but 
This is the way I've done it for five years, and honestly, I think the ambitious workload motivates me to rise to the occasion, in a sense. Thank you, Thomas and Vita, for those questions. Next, our next question is from Nathan Grabosch on Spotify. Nathan asks, do you think the collective experience of archetypes to articulate beliefs and ideas has contributed to the rise of fantasy slash collaborative storytelling games and entertainment in the recent years? Unquote. Hmm. Very interesting. I hope I'm interpreting the question right. Here are my thoughts. If we assume Jung was right in his research and intuitions about archetypes, then we have to accept that they never go away, no matter which point in history we are referring to. They have always been with us in the past, and they will always continue to be with us in the future. The only things that change are how we dress those archetypes in our present culture. Are we dressing them up in movies, video games, and comic books? Or are we dressing them up in myths, stories, and artworks? We can think of archetypes as existing in the substratum of human experience. They are close to the bedrock, while our pop culture and societal norms exist on the surface, open to the elements. With every few generations, the winds of time blow away our popular culture, and we replace it with something else. Our societal norms shift in new directions as our lives are met with new challenges and new technological problems. But the archetypes are always there, beneath the surface, showing themselves in our dreams, our stories, and those products of the current culture. And so, do they appear in fantasy games and entertainment currently? Sure. Are they appearing in those forms more so than in the other forms we had before video games and current technology? Not necessarily. The superficial surface changes, but the bedrock remains. I hope that answers your question. And thank you, Nathan. Romina on Patreon writes, Hi, MJ. Congratulations. This is my favorite podcast. Thank you. My question is, I have been reading Jacques Sadoul's Alchemy and Gold, and it states that alchemists wrote their discoveries in metaphors, since true knowledge has to remain occult. Why do you think this is? There are multiple direct references in alchemy and mythology. For instance, Mercury, the primal matter, the subconscious mind, and the Roman god, whose Greek equivalent is Hermes, as Hermes Trismegistus. Is it possible that we are talking about the same concept in different ways? Unquote. Hi, Romina. Thank you for this thoughtful question. My thoughts on the matter. Plain language alone is not adequate to convey deep and profound truths. For that, we need art. We need symbolism. We need metaphor. Esoteric traditions, by their nature, obscure the lessons and wisdom they communicate. Why? Because symbols and art are liminal forms, existing between worlds, and hence connecting points between the gross and subtle realms. In this sense, the symbols of the alchemists exist closer to the profound truths they communicate than simple words alone. That's what my personal experience tells me, as an artist and as a student of Western esoteric traditions. Thanks, Romina. Hope that helps. Next, J. Kent Kronke on Patreon writes, Good afternoon, MJ. I have a question. How do you reconcile the tension between the desire to create something absolutely original with the idea that creativity seems to be the revealing of a truth? Is there anything new under the sun? And should we strive for that if there is? Unquote. What an interesting question. Thank you, J. Kent. Hmm. This one had me thinking for a while. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, and I'm not fully convinced there is always a tension between them. There is the desire to create something original, and the idea that creativity can reveal a profound truth. The way I see it, as an artist, you can pursue the first one with the intellect, but you cannot pursue the second one with the intellect. You can be determined to create something novel and be directed in your focus for such creations. But I don't think you can plan for something which reveals a profound truth. Those kinds of works of art touch on a mystery whose origins are hidden from view. There are artists, in whatever medium you want to focus on, who try to create work that speaks to some profound truth, who are trying with all their might to be philosophical and deep in some way. But I personally find that the end result of their work often ends up feeling contrived, 
For example, take Vincent van Gogh's painting titled Irises from May 1889. It seems like a simple painting, but the longer you stare at it, the more it moves you in some way. Perhaps it's the play of colors, or the subject, or even the angle. What is going on here? Why does it seem to convey some profound unspoken truth? I don't know. But the longer you stare at it, the more it seems to be saying something. Was this effect Vincent's intention? I doubt it. At this point in his career, he was painting to paint, because it was only during painting that he felt a luminous sense of joy. I find the same effect present when I look at Vincent's paintings of cypress trees. Or in the domain of music. How about the song Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground by Blind Willie Johnson? also has this effect, a profound truth. I think it's this kind of effect that I personally always look for in any art experience. But I don't think you can pin it down enough to call it up in your own work. It just happens. Though I personally believe it happens when you are pursuing something meaningful. Pursuing something new might get you there sometimes, but pursuing something meaningful will get you there much more often. I think there will always be new things though it may seem rare, but those new things only matter when it is meaningful for them to matter. The right time in history, the right culture, and the right circumstances. So it seems foolish to be fixated on always making novelty. I think the secret is always pursuing meaning. Thanks, J. Kent. Next up, Trudy on Spotify writes, Do you consider that genius is someone who is fixated in the stage of the albedo? This stage is the closest point between the ego and the collective unconscious. It's a fascinating yet perilous stage. Psychosis. Unquote. Wow, what a question. I've never heard anyone ask something like this, and I'm honored to attempt an answer. In my personal reflections on the nature of genius, I've come to the conclusion that one of its primary aspects is the ability to make meaningful connections between seemingly unrelated things. For example, this is the connection Einstein made between gravity and velocity, or the connection Emily Dickinson made using hymn meter to interrogate the nature of God. Side note, see her poem, The Brain is Wider Than the Sky. And so, for our sake, Let's accept that genius makes meaningful connections between seemingly unrelated things. Now what you are offering is the further idea that genius is someone who is fixated in the point between the ego and the collective unconscious. I think you may be onto something, because if one's consciousness is somewhere situated between the ego and the collective unconscious, then the potential connections one has in front of them, and the new connections one can make, are multiplied exponentially. You can visualize it as someone perched on the threshold, one foot in the conscious world and one foot in the unconscious. Very interesting stuff. I'll keep pondering this. Thank you, Trudy. The next question comes from Molna on Spotify. How does Jung remember all these dreams and poignant symbolism so clearly? How could we follow his genius processes of the internal if our dream memories are not nearly as clear, if even present? Unquote. Molna, I encourage you, start using a dream journal. The act of even choosing a journal which you designate as your dream journal will have an effect on your relationship to your dream life. Before you go to sleep, place the dream journal next to your bedside, where you can easily grab it in the middle of the night, and make sure there is a pen ready to be used inside. The next time you wake up with 
even a sliver of a piece of a dream, write it down and put the date at the top or the bottom of the entry. Make a habit of it. Now, afterward, your unconscious will begin to take you a little more seriously. We must remember that there is a relationship that must be opened there as well, not just with oneself, but with this other self, the unconscious self. Jung posited that it may even be possible that aspects of our unconscious, such as the archetypes, may have a small degree of consciousness of their own, as they seem to carry out their own destinies and have a mind of their own. You have to open the door for that relationship. And you build this like a new skill, brick by brick. But first, get the dream journal. Dedicate it for this task and take it seriously. Only then will your unconscious take you seriously. I wish you luck. Our next question is from Ben Thurnhofer on Patreon. Ben says, I'm curious what your feelings are about drugs and creativity. Are drugs a crutch, a useful tool, or something else? Although it may be too personal, do you use drugs to help facilitate the creative process or find inspiration? If so, I'm curious to hear how. Unquote. This is a fun question. I did a special creativity tip minisode called Drugs and Creativity exactly on this topic. It's one of the exclusive episodes you can listen to on my Patreon. It's labeled Creativity Tip Number 11, clocking in at just under 20 minutes long. But I'll answer it here with my abridged thoughts on the topic. I think drugs and creativity have always had a significant connection. There's of course the old argument that if you're against the use of drugs, you should throw out 90% of your record collection, as most of it was created under the influence. And so there appears to be this reputation that drugs have as some kind of creativity boosters. But I think this is only partially true. From my experience, experimenting with drugs as a teenager, I can say that drugs alone will not, I repeat, not make you a creative genius. All drugs either alter the neural pathways of your brain in novel ways, or shift your consciousness in some substantial way. But the drug use isn't going to make you better at your craft, whatever it is. Deliberate practice is what makes you a master of your craft. And this is practice that is often done sober. Because to improve and excel at your craft, you need to have all of your mental resources dedicated to it for that block of time you are practicing it. Think of someone like Jimi Hendrix, one of the greatest rock guitarists and songwriters of all time. Like most people in the 60s and 70s, he was dosing LSD and smoking weed, likely on a weekly basis. But you know what else he was doing? Playing the living hell out of his guitar, all the time. He was playing his guitar before drugs came into the picture. He was playing his guitar when drugs entered the picture. And damn it, if he would have survived and not tragically died at 27, he would still be playing his guitar. Friends even recount stories of Jimmy bringing his guitar to restaurants, not so he could show off, but so he could practice it while they were waiting for their food. I personally don't use drugs anymore. I had my big experimental phase in high school, which ended with a handful of traumatic acid trips, and I'm good for life. I've seen too many people I care about become burnouts for me to ever want to go much further down that path. But yes, objectively speaking, what do drugs do for the creative process? They seem to rewire your neural pathways in novel ways. They shift your consciousness into a new orientation. And they peel off the superficial layers of your ego. Those that deal with day-to-day -day life, locating you in a moment of raw being. This is, of course, a wonderful state of mind to be in for creativity. But you don't need drugs to get there. If you find that you do, then they become a crutch. The drugs don't make the master. The master sometimes takes the drugs. Thanks, Ben. Up next, Chris DeHaven on Patreon writes, I'm curious about how symbolism works in alchemy, as well as in Jung's work. The origin of symbols and such. Their meanings are different from culture to culture, aren't they? Figuring since you're neck deep into Jung anyway, you could probably dedicate an entire episode to symbology." Unquote. Hi Chris. Yes, I don't think anyone can speak with any authority about the origin of symbols, but we can postulate a few things about their origin. For example, because symbols, along with the archetypes, are located in what seems like such a deep layer of the brain's structure, it's possible that our most distant human ancestors 
were using symbols before they were using language. Think of cave paintings, for example. This would explain why symbols are the language of the unconscious, why we do rituals, which are organized symbolic actions, and why dreams are heavily symbolic. During the evolution of our brain, the current operating system was built on top of this other system, which was then pushed into the background. And yes, this could easily become an entire episode of its own. So, if you're interested in seeing these things from Jung's perspective, I would highly recommend his book titled Archetypes and the Collective Unconscious. Thanks, Chris. The next question comes to us from Talos underscore Draws on Instagram. Talos writes, I had a question pop up in my mind. Do you think that knowledge that Jung left behind was for the creatives and perhaps neurotypicals of today to be rediscovered, to heal from modern madness and unlock potential? Speaking in terms of not psychology as itself and science, but as a kind of alchemical work. I just wonder, because many things and events in recent years led me to digging into Jung. Interestingly, me bumping into your podcast was yet another road sign for me. I went through the Red Book episodes, and that was a great supplement to what I knew already about it. Also, I started to use your guided active imagination, and interesting things started to unfold from me there. Unquote. My initial thoughts on the question. Yes, it's clear in Jung's various writing that he saw himself and his work in a historical context, clearly placing it in relation to what came before, what existed at his time, and no doubt where humanity might be later. Like all great creative geniuses, he no doubt knew that some of his work would be more appreciated in generations to come. I can only say this with some confidence because of the bird's eye view with which we know Jung saw human culture. He often speaks about the underlying patterns that unite cultures across thousands of years and the cyclical nature of human traditions. In the Red Book, he mentions how the practice of magic can disappear and always be rediscovered by subsequent generations. One of my favorite lines from Jung's Red Book is this phrase, The task is to give birth to the old in a new time. Thank you for the question, Talos. I hope it gives you something good to reflect on. Our next question comes to us from Al Spalding on Patreon. Al asks, What is the relationship between art and value? There are things that are valued in and of themselves, e.g. food. And there are things that are valued because of their perception, e.g. cryptocurrency. Many things, perhaps most, have a mix of inherent value and perceived value. A dollar bill can be used as kindling. A gold coin can be used as a paperweight. What is the value of art? to elicit an experience, to convey a message, to transform the subjective into the objective. What is creativity besides problem solving, besides a means of understanding and processing experiences slash emotions? Unquote. Phew. Okay. You see what I said? Creative Codex has the most thoughtful listeners of any show. Al also has his own podcast called Entitled Opinion. So check that out. I try to address some of these same problems regarding the function of art in Codex 14, why humans need art. But let's try to answer some of your questions here. First, we need to parse out the terms art and value. Both of these terms rely on subjectivity. Art is subjective, what art you like versus dislike is subjective, and what art you choose to create is subjective. There is one characteristic of art which is not subjective, and that is craft. Craft is the coming together of skill, technique, and knowledge. And this is the objective side of art. We can comment on a sculpture objectively by commenting on its craft. We can comment on a sculpture subjectively by saying whether we like it, whether it moves us, etc. Okay, next we have value. Value is also subjective, but it's important to split value up into personal value and cultural value. There is the value something has to you, and there is the value something has in society. Grandma's family photo album may be priceless to her, but it is worthless to society. Sorry, Grandma. Therefore, art making, as in the experience of making a creative work, is incredibly valuable to the artist making it. But the creative work itself is relatively worthless to society until it is deemed valuable, such as Nikola Tesla's invention of alternating current, or take Vincent van Gogh's 900 paintings, of which he only sold one in a 10-year span, they were all worthless to society. 
until they weren't. But I suspect you're asking a more philosophical question. What is the value slash point of art? Right? An attempt to answer this could fill up a book, and it should. But I will say this. Art's value lives in its ability to convey something which common language cannot. And that's where I'll land my plane. Thanks, Al. Our final question comes to us from my good friend, Clinton King. Clinton writes, My question is simple. How has this podcast changed your life? Unquote. Wow. I don't quite know how to answer this. I will say these things. Working on Creative Codex over these last five years, it's increased my empathy for people in all walks of life who come from all different circumstances. But especially, it's increased my empathy for artists and misfits and those awkward outliers of society who often have the potential inside of them to truly change the world. And often, all they need is a kind word from a stranger or a thoughtful email or a good conversation to keep going and not give up. I would say that Creative Codex has enriched my life through the depth with which I have to engage this material and these great works of art and culture to put out the kind of episodes I feel the work deserves. Also, the show has given me a creative outlet which also compels my growth, and that is a rare and special thing. And finally, and I guess this is a big one, it's renewed my faith in following your dreams. I can't tell you how many times I've pursued various dreams and lofty goals, and how many times I've failed. Sometimes I've succeeded, but I've had some pretty big failures too. Seeing the audience of this show grow, as well as the enthusiasm for the work grow, it's been really special, and I don't take it for granted for a second. Thanks, Clinton. And with that, I thank everyone for your questions, for your support of this show over the last five years, or over the last five months. And I'm really, really looking forward to sharing with you what we have in store for next year. The next narrative episode will be about fashion designer Alexander McQueen. Be sure to turn your bell notifications on for that. Until then, I raise my glass to you. For all these countless hours have not been in vain. If this show inspires you, in even some small way, to realize your genius. Cheers. Cheers.